You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Good evening, everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for Thursday, the 23rd of September, 2021. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, tonight's program will be audio only. There will be no other version of it. This is not going to be a live program. Those those watching the last program probably realize what happened. Uh, but an hour into the program, the feed. Uh, I, I use OBS software if anybody knows anything about streaming software anyway the just the stream just went about an hour into it so i'm trying to look at alternatives hopefully get back to doing live programs again but there's no guaranteeing that that will happen i am doing an extra program this week mainly just to finish off that last program and finish just finish this critique um, it, it won't necessarily be an hour today. I'll probably I'll try and keep it as short as possible. But this is a continuation on of the critique from the last program, which was on the Authentic Christian Podcasts program on Calvinism. And I think it was about eight and a half minutes into it. I had played up to 10 minutes, but I hadn't really commented on it. And that, that was around the time when the, the technical issues came. Hoping as well... Also to get, uh, I'll be away early next week, but I'm hoping still to get a program out, again, audio only. And uh, it looks like it'll be audio only, just podcasting for a few weeks. Hopefully, I will, I think in about two weeks' time, I'm probably going to try out a new piece of software and probably just try it out live only on sermon audio we'll, we'll play it by ear uh, if anybody's got experience in this area and is does live streaming live stream is kind of a new enough thing where a lot of people are doing it, and a lot of people have been doing it in the last couple of years but um if anybody's got experience using obs through mac it might be just a case where if i want something more reliable go you'd have to go with a paid service obs is free so can't complain too much it didn't it served me well quite a long time uh, and it's only really been the last two programs that it gave me bother so uh we're gonna start playing this from the program uh if you want to find this on youtube it's called calvinism part one season two episode eight ten the authentic christian podcast and they're talking about calvinism and they these men as well, just to give you a bit of context, uh, they are part of the Church of Christ, not a, a very orthodox group. I would struggle to, don't know a ton about them, but from what I know about them, it's it seems like they believe that you need to be baptized in order to be saved and a number of legalistic things like this. So um, let's play, we'll comment on it and try and get a finish in this program. So basically finishing off for the last one. Because I just want to look at some of the ones that, that they will bring up. Um, we're not going to have time to cover all these. But um, Ephesians 2.3 is the, the one we'll go to first. Um, Ephesians 2.3 says, Among whom also, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, Among whom also we, so Paul's including himself and the church in Ephesus, we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. He says the way we lived, we were living after our lust fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, just like the others. And so they say by nature means that word nature means your natural order, like the way you're born. Right. Um, it can mean that the Greek word sarks, um, flesh. I think that's what by nature. Uh, I think so. Actually, I could be wrong. Can you look up the Greek word there? Yeah. Sarks means flesh. I don't know that that is nature. No, it's fusis. Never mind. You don't have to look it up. It's fusis. Um, yeah, saying some uh, phusis is the word. Now, sometimes that can mean natural order of birth, but also sometimes it can mean the regular or established order of things, which B is a Greek lexicon that talks about that. So basically, it would mean the way you've been living. Like if I said Joe is just he's a drunk, 
And, you know, there's sometimes there are various possible definitions. If you look up a Greek def- uh, lexicon or something like BDAG is the the modern day expensive lexicon that you can get that gives you quite a range of meanings and different terms and stuff like that. It's, well, he's, he was right the first time, it is Sarkos, but um, there's a danger in which you just, I suppose, you know, that old expression, you miss the wood from the trees. What is the context? Verse one of Ephesians. And if you start with that, who were dead in trespass and sins. Um, these are people, as they admitted, is a part of the church in Ephesus, and um, they were dead in some way, shape, or form. Or were they dead in their actions? Uh, dead in trespass, dead towards God. And we know this going back, back to Genesis chapter 3. We're dead in trespass and sins in, in which you w- once walked according to the course of the power of the air. That deadness is connected to, and you once walk according to the course of, of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which now works in the sons of disobedience. You were dead, and this is the con- conduct that flowed out of it. There is no getting away from that. In Adam all die. In Adam all die. But in Christ all should be made alive. So, when people are quoting texts like this, be very careful to read around the text, see if they are respecting the context, and look at it. Don't just hop around. You could, If you get a chain of short snippets of texts from different contexts, from different genres, from different parts of the Bible, there's a sense in which you can prove almost anything. This is nature. I don't mean Joe was born a drunk. I mean that Joe, through the course of his actions, the things he chose to do, he became a regular habitual drunk, right? And I would say that you have to use that definition in certain contexts. Because if you go to Romans 2, 4. He became, he became. Now, I had, I've had to listen to this to before, and I was like, is this Pelagianism? Is this, you know, is this denial of original sin? And uh, the more I listened to it, the more, yeah, I realized that, yeah, this is Pelagianism. And you're basically born righteous, but eventually you become, you become, through the bad example of Adam, a sinner. You're not born a sinner. And that's heretical. It's another gospel because Christ is no longer the other, the only way. Surely if you are another Adam, you can just continue to live righteously. You have no right to presume everyone's a sinner then in such a case. Well, of course, a lot of Pelagianism doesn't make a lot of sense. It starts with man and really starts off with a lot of emotional arguments and then works out from there. But you have to start with God and the nature of God and who he is. It says, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having a law, are a law to themselves. So by nature, Gentiles follow God, right? Well, I mean, does that mean that from the time they're born, they they automatically follow God? In different context, he's going from the situation in Ephesus to the situation with, with the Roman church. Um, Paul's epistle to the Romans is not dealing with the same thing. When we come to this in, what is it, Romans 2.15, who show the work of the law in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts excusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my, my gospel. And the one thing that you see, if you read through Romans 1, 2, and 3, is that it talks about the universality of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
might be a way of summarizing that. And suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The just shall live by faith. Paul, from verse 18 onwards, describes how they're all without excuse, both Jew and Gentile. Now, man has been created in the image of God. So the law of God has been written on his heart. Now, he suppresses that truth. He fights against that truth. He needs to be born again. He needs to be regenerated. For the Gentiles, verse 14 in Romans 2, for when the Gentiles, who do by the law, by nature, the things that are in the law, because fall, we, fallen men, lost men, have a conscience. I'll give you an example. Most unbelievers would think that it's wrong to murder and would feel bad after murder and things like that. They show various aspects of the law, but can they keep the law? No, you can't, you can't, and you can't take that from this verse at all. Our greatest deeds are but filthy rags. Isn't that was Isaiah 64? We cannot, as to summarize the law, as Jesus did in Matthew 22, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. There is not a single moment where anybody has loved God as much as you ought to for even a single second. We have broken the law in thought, in word, and in deed. We are sinners. We have been born sinners. It, it comes as naturally to us as breathing. So, be very careful when you see this hopping around in the text. Read a few verses, at least read a few verses, perhaps read the entire chapter. Read a few verses before, read a few verses after. Describe the situation. It, they're not explaining the context at all, except when it seems to fit into what they believe. I mean, if you're going to be consistent with your definitions, you have to say that basically they make a choice. Gentiles who don't have the law of Moses can choose to do the things in the law, right? But if you're going to say that word nature always means birth, then Romans 2.14 disproves total depravity roughly. That again, the neat, I mean, look at that, verse 14 here. Um, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, that's the law of Moses, by nature do the things in the law, that's the law written in their hearts, although, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. They show, and this shows that they're condemned, for as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. <laughs> if you just read a few verses either side of it, you're just debunking your claim. No, this is not claiming the Gentiles Unbelievers, pagans, can keep the law of God. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Another way of saying this is this. Paul's argument is this, that they will be condemned for the knowledge that they have, both coming from nature and also from the fact that they have a conscience. They show it by their actions, by their conscience, either accusing them or excusing them. The eh, just leaves you astonishing that it is just astonishing mental gymnastics, man centered mental gymnastics of the Pelagian gospel. It's another gospel. There are people who are Arminians, right? Who I would see as brothers in Christ. 
praise God for blessed inconsistency, for they're not really trusting in their decision or anything else like that. But when you get to Pelagianism, which says that man becomes a sinner, man is a good moral agent. There's another way. There's another way presented. The obedience of man. And then everybody becomes, in some way, some kind of an Adam. And it very much all depends, even more so, more explicitly so, on man's choice, man's decision, man's work. Then Romans 2.14 disproves total depravity right off the bat. Yeah, because they can choose to do, and and they did choose to do certain things, right? Yeah, they did. Right? I mean, yeah. a, a lot of them took care of their parents, and they did other good things that yeah. would have been taught in the law. Yeah, uh, horizontally, but vertically towards God, no, uh, we we don't. You know, even our even those nice things, even as Christians, we we fall short. We don't keep the law. Even after as believers, yes, we produce good fruit, but the only way that fruit is acceptable is by and through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because it never matches up to the standard of Christ. We're still sinners. We don't have perfect fruit after salvation. Because, you know, even those things that we do that are good things, you could say, toward man are always tainted with sin. Because of our hearts. Because the Gentiles, in, in doing those good things, it is never to glorify God. And because whatsoever you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God, th that's sin there. So, Pelagianism drags down the law of God. It makes it, as man sees, as a good standard to live in society. It, it, it makes the standard much lower, diminishes what Christ does, and gives the power into the hands of men. Right? Yeah. Moral decisions. They do yeah. immoral things too, but but they could choose that. Yeah. 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 I mean, Tucker, um, you're an Ecclesiastes guy. You know there's yeah. a passage in Ecclesiastes that talks about God making man what? Like, 729? Ecclesiastes 7.29. Oh, yeah, because you have it down here. Yeah. <laughs> God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Yeah, God made man upright. And that word man, I believe, I believe, I didn't check this like today, I believe it's plural. So it's not saying God made Adam upright and they've sought out many schemes. God made all of mankind upright, but they've sought out many schemes. God didn't make man corrupted, you know, just like Adam had free will. I mean, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yes, of course. Yes. Um, Man was created upright. Who denies that? Man was man was created on the sixth day in creation week. But then he sought out many inventions. He went away from God. He was created holy and righteous. Adam was. But he fell from that. And all of mankind in Adam fell. I just want to get that verse from Ecclesiastes in front of me in, oh, I can pull it up in my Bible works. If that all works out. Oh, yes. Yeah, I was looking at this the other day. Um, so, truly, this only I have found, Ecclesiastes 7.29, that God has made man Adam, upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Like Adam, I'm trying to think here, I do have 
I do have commentary there in front of me. I don't think that that is... That's Ha-Adam. Adam. Adam. It could be translated this way. I'm not saying that it should be translated this way, but... Um, truly this I have found, that God has made Adam upright. But it's sought out many schemes. But it's the same word. Adam. Adam. If you look throughout the Bible, man was created, Genesis 1.27. Ha Adam. Man or Adam was created from the dust of the earth. Ha Adam in, in Genesis 2.7.22. I'm going to grab my technical commentary here just to see if it agrees with this. This is something I should have done before the program. <laughs> so, in Ecclesiastes, this is this is singular, this is a group term, this is ha-adam, but I just want to double check before I um, say this. This is from a technical commentary. Uh, no, it doesn't actually make any comments on this. But Man, I'm just trying to figure what exactly, because it's the same word, Ha'adam, Genesis one twenty seven. Maybe I'm just giving too much credit and spending too much time on this point, but let's just play it again. Ecclesiastes 7.29. Oh, yeah, we should have it down here. Yeah. <laughs> God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Yeah, God made man upright. And that word man, I believe, I believe, I didn't check this like today. I believe it's plural. So it's not saying God made Adam upright and they've sought out many schemes. God made all of mankind upright, but they've sought out many schemes. God didn't make man corrupted, you know, just like Adam had free will. I mean, we have free will. See, he sees Adam as the same as everyone else. But that, that word is not Adam, Adam. Again, it's the same, mankind, again, exactly the same as Genesis 127. Yeah, there's no comment, there's no comment on my, um, the technical commentary that I have on Ecclesiastes. I don't see how whatever way you translate it, Ha-Adam, either translated Adam or man, or mankind, could be translated all of those, those three ways. It still amounts to the same thing because, as you can tell from Romans 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there is, represent all of mankind are represented in Adam. And the sin of Adam, mankind was created upright in Adam, but when Adam fell, men fell. Mankind fell. In the, let's give a look here at the Septuagint. Anthropon, it's singular. There's, not sure what his argument is. I, I, I spent a bit of time on this verse because I, I like this verse. It's an important verse to show actually the opposite of what they're claiming. It, it, this verse actually proves original sin. But they, they, I think that's plural. 
Yeah, actually, Adam. Yeah, I have it here, actually. It's singular. Noun, common, masculine, singular. Singular. And that's, so Adam is singular. And then they sought out many inventions. So actually, this is the thing. When you slow down, have a look at the verse. Have a look at the verse in the original languages. It shows, and in Adam all die, but in Christ all should be made alive. And Adam chose to do what? He chose to... Chose to what? Adam chose to yeah. sin. He chose to yeah. sin. Yeah. So Adam had a choice. He chose to sin. He had free will to choose to follow God like he'd been doing up to the point or to choose sin. And he made that decision. And then what happens to each one of us? What do we have? We teach. We have free will. Mm-hmm. And we choose to do what? No, we've chosen to sin. Sin. Same thing Adam did. Yeah. So we're exactly the same state as Adam. Say the denial of original sin, and this is why it matters. The Adam could choose to do what was good because he was created holy and upright. We're not. We're born sinners. It's a different situation. Now, we, when we sin, we choose to sin. It's not done against our will. Now... <laughs> The word free will is unhelpful because it says you can choose the good and all this kind of stuff. There's, there is a term free agency. We are not in any way, shape, or form forced to sin. We sin because we want to. We sin because we choose to. And we choose to out of a corrupt nature. It's the exact same thing Adam did. The well, same way. We've talked about this and... It really puts it into perspective for me. But if this is true, and when you're born, you are a sinner, no matter like mm. it, that would mean that my little boy, who's only almost 19 months old, Dirks, um, he is destined for hell right now. And so it's almost like this clicking time bomb. Unless he's elect, but you don't. Unless really know. he's elect, but you don't know, and even the the known don't know. But anyways, it's like unless mm. they have an experience. That's a nonsense explanation for that. I've never, exp- you know. Could you imagine if you just thought, well, in God's sovereign decree, it's destined, and I'm being facetious if he did this with anything else to do with providence or anything like that, you know, someone is destined to die in a road traffic accident and can't get away from it or something like that. We shouldn't ever, we don't go into, God knows the end from the beginning and he brings about everything that will come to pass. He is sovereign over everything. Because he is God. We call people to trust in Christ. And whoever trusts in Christ will be saved. Anyone who is trusting in Christ will be delivered. They have been delivered from death to life. This whole nonsense, he doesn't know. Well, if you believe in Christ, you know. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know where you where you will spend eternity. But which it, it it's not yeah. biblical. But anyways, it'd be like I would have to hope that Dirks grows up until like maybe you know the account the age where he starts can realize good and evil and wrong and like um, the age of accountability mm-hmm. and hopefully decide to become a Christian. And then it goes into like the whole elect thing. But yeah, that's like, that's horrible. It's a- so is he in some kind of, it will decide to become a Christian. Um, I suppose this is where, you know, Presbyterians would disagree with Baptist brothers and other people as well like that. We don't treat, you know, in, in a reformed home and, where we hold to the Westminster standards, we don't treat children as if they are little pagans or little heathen. We know that they're sinners, but we raise them as Christians, raised in the covenant. Now, they may, through unbelief, break away from that covenant, but we raise them 
as believers. Like, I mean, if this is the case, well, you shouldn't really teach your child to pray or anything else like that. They believe, the more and more I listen to this, the more I see this, they believe that children are good. Born good. Why do you have to discipline children? Why, do, why does the rod of correction spoken about in Proverbs drive foolishness from a child? According to this logic, well, we, we learn to be sinners. Age accountability, where's that in the scriptures? Every single person needs a savior. I find it astonishing that anybody with children would think that, yeah, they're, they're born morally good. That's going towards theological liberalism. Man is good, but he just learns bad stuff from his environment or something like that. The thing is, me as a parent to go like, wow, like my, he's already destined for hell. So he has to, this, we're talking about original sin here. It's like, I don't know. This is, no, I know. I guess saying. it's not tied into. No, totally, it is. It is. But it's it just is. like, it's scary yeah. because it's like, if this is true, which it is not biblical, that would be horrible because that means Dirks has to grow up fast enough until 11 or 12 to make a decision to become so, a Christian. So what they would but say it, yeah. is they would say, you don't know whether Dirks is elect or not. Yeah. So 11 or 12, um, both of I don't, this age of accountability doctrine really annoys me. Uh, yeah, I know that I think 12 years old is a good age for people, maybe particularly of the Lord's Supper and things like that, and um, becoming communicant members, that way to discern, they're old enough to discern the Lord's body, but my children already, they're seven years old, both of them, they, they already read the Bibles morning and evening. I'm not trying to say, oh, wow, look at that, at the this arbitrary, we hope you'll make a decision later on. Even if this theology or the theology was orthodox, it would not be good. Teach your children. Raise them. If you're a Christian parent, you're to raise your children in the covenant. Whether you, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you see it or not, it's there. We're to raise, train up a child the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now, that is not to say you do all the right things, tick, tick, tick the boxes, and therefore, they will definitely be this, this, and this. But there's a general principle of when you're raising your children, they will, the, the, the examples you give them, the things that, that will stay with them. And this can even be the case sometimes for parents whose children have wandered and things like that. There'll be things that you have taught your children, probably, you know, maybe catechism questions or Bible verses that will stay with that child. You know, when he, he or she grows up in the world, could be 30 years old and they could get saved later. He was born with Adam's sin. So my, I remember I was in Nashville. I went to the Lifeway bookstore at their headquarters to like look for, I was looking through some new translations they released. And this employee came. Uh, you know, I, I, I know I keep saying this. Like, how does, no, it's a different guy speaking. I can't remember the guy who's talking, but he's talking about his child and he's destined for hell or something like that. But how do you know that he's destined, if, according to Pelagian theology, where you're born, you're not born a sinner. Well, how dare you presume that he's going to ever become a sinner? Why would he even need to become a Christian if you followed such logic? Surely he just continued to be sinless? Past the age of 12, perhaps. It's another gospel, folks. It's another gospel.
up and he was, um, you know, asking me, trying to point me in these directions. And I said, I don't like that translation because this, we got into a pretty deep discussion. He was reformed and he started asking me questions about, and I said, what do you think happens to, he was talking about total depravity. And he was like, surprised I didn't believe it. And so I said, what happens to a baby that dies? I mean, if it's born with Adam's sin, what happens to it? He's like, well, I really don't know. I was like, but I mean, let's just be real. Your doctrine says he has sin and it hasn't been atoned for yet. So does he go to hell? This is a horrible question to ask people. And this is purely, you are just, there are people, there are, there are questions that are difficult that good godly men will disagree on. Well, I have my own view on it. I'll, I'll share in a minute. But this is not a fair thing to say, hey, what do you believe about, you know, infant mortality, are you going to spend eternity and all this kind of stuff? It's quite legitimate to say, I don't know. And the Lord could be, you know, like from a Baptist perspective, I'm guessing that this guy was talking about was a Baptist, that you would say, I don't know. And any of the elect among them will be saved, but they all need God's mercy. We don't need to start every conversation with men's knowledge and starting with the standard with men. And that's constantly what these people do. He's like, well, we don't know how God's grace is going to, I said, man, I, I, I respect that answer, but what I'm telling you is like, that's not what your doctrine teaches, right? Yeah. And a lot of people say that. No, the, the, he doesn't respect. I respect the answer, but I'm going to keep pushing you because I don't. You see, that's also not Calvinism doesn't. The tulip by itself does not determine one's view of covenant theology. There's Baptists who probably lean towards the, you know, they don't know if a child, they hope, and they know that the Lord can save infants in the womb who die in the womb. Um, those who would, there's a more Dortian view, kind of more Senator Dort view, which is basically this, that um, a child who is in the covenant will go to, go to heaven because they're a covenant child. They can only break away from the covenant through unbelief, and they're not old enough to do that. So therefore, that's my own view. But I also know brothers who are reformed, Westminster standard, and they told me, I can't be, I can't be certain. I, I think you can be. I think, you know, the more I've studied this over the years, and I've changed my mind a couple of times on this, and this is not an easy view, but it largely depends on your, your, your view of covenant theology. And he's got to bring up David and the loss of his son. He had a son, he had a son to Bathsheba. And the view of David as a believer having a child within the covenant also has to be taken into context when he when he gives this example. That's not they'll say, Well, God didn't talk about that. My thing, the Bible says if you die with sin, you what? You're going to hell. You're going to hell. That's why Jesus had to die. If you can be saved without sins being forgiven, why did Jesus have to die? The blood of Christ washes away sins. Now, I have always gone back to 2 Samuel chapter 12 because 2 Samuel chapter 12 is where David has a boy who dies. I think he's seven days old. And after the child dies, David says this, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept. This is uh, 2 Samuel 12, 22. And I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. The child had died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David knew where his seven-day-old child was. He knew he was in paradise. You know, mm-hmm. it was on its way to heaven. I mean, so he knows his baby. Because he was in the covenant. And if you go through, Romans 11 is a good example. It talks about the olive branch and talks about the Jews, some being broken out through unbelief and the Gentiles being grafted in. And I would argue that David's child was not old enough to break away from the covenant through unbelief. And therefore, yes, is in paradise. And I also respect, I understand where people are coming from. They'll say, well, that's more of a general... Um, I will go to, I think it's the word Sheol, I'm not entirely sure, but that, you know, that he died, I will also go there as well. 
okay, I get that. I don't agree with that, but I, I understand where a person is coming from at that point of view. But a person's Calvinism or even covenant theology and views of covenant theology does not mean A, that they'll even have a view on this issue. I mean, there's an agenda when you're kind of going towards these kind of questions. And much of the time, it would be wise to avoid answering such questions, frankly. Um, it took me years to come to my own conclusions, and a lot of it had to do with my view of covenant theology, of, of children within the covenant. What happens? How should we treat children raised in a Christian home? Well, we treat them as believers. Because if you grew up in a, in a Jewish home, in, in before the time of Christ, you raised Jews, believers, in the seed of the woman that would come, and, uh, promised in Genesis 3.15. So, now, we don't presume that they're regenerated or that they're unregenerated. We raise them in the covenant, calling them to believe in Jesus Christ, repent of their sins. They may be regenerated in the womb. They may be born again later. They may be 10, ten, ten, uh, ten years old, whatever the case may be. It's different for everybody. But you teach them. You don't try to second guess. What what is in the heart of the child? And you don't try to limit the work of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit can work on a small child or even a baby in the womb. But that's what happened with um, John the Baptist. Paradise. Yeah. Like I'm glad there wasn't anybody there to say, David, you really don't know whether your child is actually saved. There's a lot of churches that would not, I don't think, would come out from a pulpit and say, Hey, if you lost a child in a miscarriage, it might be in it might be in torment. Nobody would say nobody says that. I've now maybe some churches have said that, but you know why they wouldn't say that? Because their members would leave. But a lot of their members don't know that. The only time I've ever seen definitive views being shared by ministers in this area is that if you've lost a child in the womb, they are in paradise. That's the view. Uh, Robert Godfrey, I remember listening to Robert Godfrey, I think it was a few years ago, and I think it was on Ligonier. Was it Ligonier? Might have been. Uh, and it was talking about the, the, the sin of the Dort and pastoral issues that came up, and one of them was this. And one of the accusations by the Armenians was, I think in regard, it's very, very similar to what the guys are trying to argue here. And they would say, no, we believe the children of believers who die in infancy are going to paradise. That's Reformed theology. Now, again, that's not everybody in Reformed theology. That's not even in our confessional standards, you know, our weird Westminster standards. Um, just that issue does not come up, but in, 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 the, in, the, in the Synod Dort, it did. And... Yeah. What they actually believe. No. Whereas what the New Testament says and the Old Testament, 1 John 3, 4, sin is a transgression of what? God's law. God's law. Romans four fifteen. without law, there's no transgression. In order to be accountable to a law, you have to know good and evil, Deuteronomy one thirty nine, which children don't know. So what you're telling me is a child, a baby, Dirks, mm -hmm. who's what? One and a half, almost two? Yeah. He, does Dirks know right and wrong yet? No. No, he, he, he might know like, if I do that, dad doesn't like it or says, I don't do that. But yeah. he doesn't know the difference between sin and God's law and breaking it. He, Dirks yeah. cannot commit a sin yet. We talked about that. It's like, we can understand like, hey, that's a good thing and a bad thing, right and wrong. But it's like when it comes down to realizing that you're breaking God's law, like when you're that's realizing right. it's a sin. That's right. And preparing for this, this, like. That's not true because the heavens declare the glory of God. Not a God, not just general God, uh, God, the creator. And Romans 1, 1 to 3 shows the universality of sin. It shows that we even created the image of God and Gentiles even show the work of God in our hearts. They know they have a conscience to know what's wrong. 
to, you know, even apart from the Bible, they know they will fight, you know, an unbelievable fight against this, but they know from creation and also their own conscience that they've broken God's law. And by the way, ignorance, I think it's in Leviticus, is not an excuse for, you can still sin in ignorance, but it's still sin. Wasn't a Christian. I grew up Southern Baptist and realized a lot of things weren't in scripture. And even looking back, there were things that were Calvinism sneaked in. And some points I believed without knowing that I believed. And I would never claim that I was ever a Calvinist. Mm-hmm. And then became a Christian. We learned that season one. But anyways, this is like, for me, this this belief is sad for me. It, it, and it makes you upset because it just changes who um, God is entirely and yep. who Jesus is. And it doesn't, it brings no hope unless mm-hmm. you're a part of the elect. And it really just, if you. Uh, yeah. And you see, and for the Pelagian, there's no hope because the, the power is not in the hands of man. It's so man centered. The hope is all gone. If it is not in the hands of men, the Pelagian gospel offers no hope. The Pelagian God offers no hope. God of Pelagianism has done everything he possibly can. And it seems like doing the best he can. But then he's waiting for everybody to do the right thing. Rather than the powerful God who commands all men everywhere to repent, but none would come unless they were given a new nature. Not only God does God show mercy towards people in in offering and sharing the gospel to them. But he also gives them hearts that would turn. The gospel that only makes it possible to get saved, rather than Jesus actually saving people, leaves men in their deadness. It leaves men slaves to sin. It is asking a slave, a dead slave, to break away from his own chains, chains to a master he loves, sin. He must be given a new heart and a new nature. If you're a Calvinist and you're, or if you're not, just think about these things because it's it's very scary if you believe in this. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are, we're at 11 minutes. We may do a second episode on this. I don't know. There's lots of proof texts that like Psalm 51, 5, the New International Version, which I'm not a fan of, says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I would say that that is not a right, that's not a translation. That's a um, interpretation of Calvinistic doctrine being inserted. Um, the New International Version uses sinful nature in Romans when the word is flesh, yeah. sarks. That word's even used to talk about Jesus. Okay, let's look at a different translation. Psalm 50. Ay, ay, Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your, your chesed, According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. From the very, very get-go, from conception, I am a sinner. Psalm 51, verse 5. Take a look at the the Hebrew there for a second. Psalm 51, 
verse 5. Um, am I in the right verse? Oh, I'm not. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. King James, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. ESV, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Um, he seems to have a problem with the NIV here. Don't have the NIV on my screen here. Um, behold, in, in iniquity. In iniquity, all right. Let's just get through. Jesus have a sinful nature? No. So, um, for somebody that says Psalm fifty-one says he was sinful at birth, what about Psalm twenty-two ten? He he kind of hops around the place. Yeah, I mean, from conception, from let's get it here. My mother, and then Yaham to conceive. And in sin, and in sin, my mother conceived me. Is there any other way to render that? And in sin. My mother conceived me. And in the verses prior to that, he's asking for his sins to be blotted out. And he's saying that the, the, the genesis, the beginning of that sin, goes right back to conception. where I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. I mean, that doesn't sound like a totally depraved baby, right? Psalms, are, they're figurative. You go to Psalm 58. The There's some poetic language. There's some things about breaking the teeth of the enemies, yes. But you also have to explain what does the figure, when there is elements of figurative language used, where what is it saying what what is it what is it a picture of you can't just say it's figurative and just say well that's not saying that you have to also explain what the picture of language is saying again you can talk about you know some of the graphic imagery at the end of psalm 137 for example uh breaking the teeth of the enemies you know you can think of a lion and what what are the weapons that it has teeth you you remove the teeth you're removing their enemies, the, 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 the weapons that the enemy would wish to use against us. That's the context. Um, when you say, you have been my God from my youth. I'm trying to get the verse here. He's bringing up. How is that figurative? He says like he's not his God. Is it a, what are you saying? About Psalm 22.10. Where... Okay, Psalm 22.10. Let's just actually look at these verses rather than hopping around. Um, I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Well, again, if you have a reformed view of covenant theology, that you're just not a little, a little heathen or unbeliever in the womb. You're a sinner. You see, you have to realize David writes this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, was raised in the covenant, and his God from the womb was the Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, he was also a sinner. From conception, he needed a savior 
from conception. But he also wasn't a heathen in the womb. As John the Baptist wasn't a heathen in the womb. It, it, it's like, which is, yes, yes, it's both. We've been born conceived in iniquity. It, but what about this? You see, and as soon as you show them what this says, well, what about this? What about this? I, I don't think I'll be able to get through all the episode because there's just so many errors in this, but we'll do our best. We'll probably finish up in a few minutes. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. I mean, that doesn't sound like a totally depraved baby, right? Psalms are, they're figurative. Um, age of accountability doesn't, doesn't sound like the age of accountability there, does it? But, you know. You go to Psalm 58. The wicked are estranged from the womb. This is used to teach total depravity. They go astray as soon as they're born speaking lies. Now, is that figurative or literal? It's figurative. When's the last time you had a baby as soon as it came out of the womb? It starts speaking. Lies. That'd be kind of creepy, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Evelyn can say cook cook for cookie monster. <laughs> like cook cook cook. But she did not come out of the womb speaking lies. It's saying it's figurative lies. Okay. Obviously their kids have never thrown a tantrum at the age of I don't know, eleven months or whatever. And before they're even speaking. I cannot believe. You, you hear this stuff from psychologists and, and people on the left that, oh, well, they're good. Have you ever seen a child lying? Um, yeah, they... Let me, let me give you another illustration. When, when a child is growing up, do you have to teach them to lie or to tell the truth? Which comes naturally to them? Seriously? Do we have to go here? If you leave a child to his own devices, what will he do? They'll be the kind of child who throws a tantrum in the middle of the supermarket. And if you leave them for long enough, if you don't, just, just let a child do whatever he wants. By the age of 15, he will be in maybe prison. Maybe the age of 18. It's patently, patently absurd what has been said here. From a young age, when people when people grow and learn to speak, they start to speak lies and they do sinful things. It's not saying when you come out of the womb, you know, that you're speaking and you're telling lies and you're, uh, uh, verse six. So what does it say? Oh, it doesn't say that. It says what I say. That's the eisegesis of the text. I see Jesus when you read into the text, actually just kind of dismember the text. What significance does it have saying from a, from a, oh, it doesn't say that. It's just later on when you're a bit older, about 12 apparently or five or whatever, you learn to tell lies. Then. Why? Are you, again, aren't you sinfully presuming that everyone's going to tell lies if you're Pelagian and you believe everybody's righteous? That's right. Break the teeth in their mouth. Oh God, break out the fangs of the young lions. So it even sh tells you in that Psalm 58, it's, it's not talking about a literal, it's young lions. Babies aren't lions. They don't have teeth talking. That'd be creepy. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the show today. White, MacArthur, they all would say, they would say you have free will, but they would say, but that free will is in the confines of, I think MacArthur or Sproul says, a prison. Like you can only make decisions inside that depraved will. So you can make a decision, but it can never be good to follow God. It'll always be sinful. So what they say is when we were born, we were depraved. The only things we could do is choose not God, choose sin, right? So basically that will made me sin or I was disposed to sin, right? Now you may say, what's he spending all his time on this? What does the Bible say about Jesus being tempted? It's amazing that the, the son of God, the sinless, spotless lamb of God, the second Adam, has been compared to, well, fallen humanity. But here we go. It's like as we are. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah, Where is that? Sin. Um, Hebrews 4.15. Yeah. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus, 
was what? In all points, tempted like we are, yet never sinned, right? How could he be like us if he, like, because if, if he was like us and we did have a sin nature from birth, bingo, that would mean he would have a sin nature. That's right. If Jesus had a sin nature and a sin nature makes you sin, then what should Jesus have done? Yeah, he, if he you've never done. been put in a position where you can't choose anything but evil, every choice you make. Everything that Jesus was tempted by that is shown in the scriptures, especially if you look at Matthew 4, Luke 4, places like that, is in regards to natural desires. For example, he was tempted by the devil with food. Is it wrong to feel hungry? No. And there's areas in which Jesus was never tempted. He was never tempted with homosexuality or anything else like that, okay? So immediately, and there's even modern-day examples you could give of things he was never tempted by, you know, internet pornography or something like that. So the the it's not in every single way. What, what sense does it mean? In all points, he in our way, he was he experienced tiredness, he experienced hunger, he experienced sadness. But he never had sinful desires. Even you know, being tempted by the devil, for example, give me some example. He was tempted by the the than the kingdoms of the world because they all belonged to him. He was tempted by glory because glory belonged to him. He, he, he prayed that he would be glorified at the beginning of John 17. So any of his desires and things he was tempted by were good things. He was tempted to not go the way of the cross. The way of suffering. Is there anything wrong with not wanting suffering? No. But he always sought the glory of God. He knew that he had to suffer. When he prayed to his father, my hour has come. Speaking about his hour of suffering, an hour of darkness. Yet without sin. He suffered. He was suffered in all points that he could have been suffered, that he could have been. But he was never a sinner. He took upon frail human flesh in a sin-cursed world. But let's not read in every single depraved thing that... Jesus was therefore attracted towards then with such a verse. Plus, do you see what this doctrine does? When you deny original sin, when you deny that we're, we're, we're sinners by nature, then you make mere fallen men the same as Adam in the Garden of Eden, And then you have you don't have much difference between him and Christ. It is going to be the wrong choice. Yeah. There's no world in which you can say So connect it with Jesus. Yeah, there's no world in which you can say, well, well Jesus was tempted in all points like as you are. Jesus so, didn't face that. So what they're saying, what yes, they're that was true. Yeah, so let's connect the dots. Mm-hmm. Anyone that's born that has a sin nature has to sin. That's what makes you sin. You don't have a choice but to choose sin. But Hebrews 4.15 says Jesus was tempted in all points like we are, yet never sinned. If he was tempted like I was, he has to have a sin nature. Or else, if someone says he doesn't have a sin nature, which is what they say, then he wasn't tempted like I am. If my sin nature makes me sin, then Jesus either had one or Hebrews 4.15 is wrong. Yeah. And Hebrew, obviously, Hebrews 4.15 is not wrong. And Jesus didn't have a sin nature, and neither do we. And if he did, and they say, if he did have one, and they argued, say, well, they... Mer- you hear that? Um, Jesus didn't have a sin nature, and neither do we so that's 
the importance of original sin, folks. Because, like, if we don't have original sin, we're not, according to Pelagianism, we're not sinners by nature. And therefore, when it talks about in Romans 5, well, people just learn from the bad example of Adam, and that's it. No, no, we are sinners by nature. We all fall short of the glory of God. All of us. There's none who have not sinned. But there's only one person who's ever walked upon the face of the earth who kept the law perfectly and did it for all his people who will come to him and trust in him. It's from Paul Flynn. Talk to you again soon.